brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello again, fellow flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. So what's been going on? Let me take a wild guess. You've been spending a lot of time at home, just watching those hours of the day tick on by while you're sitting around on the old homestead. Well, I applaud you all on showing consideration for your fellow man, staying home, doing your part to bring the spread of this deadly virus to a halt. Personally, I just look forward to making it to 8 p.m. every day. I like hearing my neighbors banging on pots and pans, howling like wild coyotes at dusk. It always brings me a much-needed boost of joy to each night. Today is the 21st episode of PCPC, and for episode 21, we're going to be taking a look at Aeroflot Flight 593, a scheduled flight from Moscow, Russia to Hong Kong on the night of March 23rd, 1994. Thanks to all of you out there for your support with the podcast. Thanks especially to our new Patreon members. Your contribution helps make this podcast possible. If you like the podcast and want to contribute, please visit patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. It's a way to support something you like in the world. I like PBS, so I give PBS $5 a month. If you like PCPC and are in a position to support the show, we'd really appreciate it. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. So that's patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. Thanks again. Joining us on the podcast today is a human being that you've all come to know and love, the fastest gun west of the Mississippi, Miss Tess Andrade. Thank you, Michael, for that beautiful introduction. No problem. Thanks for being on the podcast yet again. <laughs> Tess, has this been the greatest quarantine of your life? Honestly, it's been both the only quarantine and the greatest so quarantine it's of the my best, life. It's the worst. What have you been up to? Oh, you know, um, there have been different phases for sure. There was the... Um, 
gardening and baking bread phase. Mm-hmm. There was the um, just kind of catatonic on the couch phase. Yes, yes. There was the zooming with friends for long stretches of time phase. You know, it's it's a lot of ups and downs, but I think I'm going to get through it, I hope. Nice. How about you? What have you been up to? Well, I went down the Waco siege rabbit hole for three to four days. I lost all concept of time. I might have been down there even longer. There's a new show on Netflix called Waco with a phenomenal actor, Michael Shannon. You know Michael Shannon? I I don't. I'm going to have to Google. He's fantastic. Okay. After that, I watched a documentary on PBS Frontline about the Waco siege. I even thought about doing a podcast episode on Waco because I went in so deep with the research. But I thought, you know, the listeners of PCPC might wake up and be like, I didn't sign up for this. All he's talking about is Jesus and tanks. When's the plane going to get involved? Well, Michael, I don't know. You might be surprised. It was, um, Waco was just mentioned in a show I was watching, Tiger King. Oh, yeah. Which I know a lot of people have been watching that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's in the collective consciousness right now. Yeah. I think Waco just had its 25 year anniversary in 2018 is when this show came out. It just came out on Netflix. So I think uh, Waco was a very sad event and it led to more sad events. And it was an interesting, um, interesting show. People should check it out. Well, Tess, the airline industry is rolling out new policies to try and accommodate passengers the best they can in the strange world we all live in now due to the pandemic. JetBlue is the first airline to require all passengers to wear face covering while flying on their planes. In mid-April, JetBlue was the first airline to mandate that all employees on JetBlue planes had to wear masks. The new policy for passengers goes into effect on May 4th, 2020. Joanna Garrity, the president and COO for JetBlue, said in a statement, Wearing a face covering isn't about protecting yourself. It's about protecting those around you. This is the new flying etiquette. On board, cabin air is well circulated and cleaned through the filters every few minutes. But this is a shared space where we have to be considerate of others. We are also asking customers to follow the CDC guidelines in the airport as well. Delta Airlines has quit selling all middle seats in economy. Delta is also reducing the number of passengers on flights. United Airlines has stated that no passenger will be forced to sit directly next to another passenger unless they desire to. American Airlines announced that they will start distributing hand sanitizing gel, sanitizing wipes, and masks to passengers that board their planes starting in early May. A lot of attention towards the lack of proper social distancing on planes came about this past week. After a passenger on board an American Airlines flight from New York to Charlotte posted a video of a crowded plane with many passengers without face coverings. American Airlines stated that the flight from the video was 85% full. Last week, there was increased travel on planes in the U.S. TSA said they screened about 85,000 more passengers than the previous week. Airlines across the board are suspending beverage service to cut costs and cut down on the contact between human beings on board. American Airlines has quit selling alcohol in economy, but continues to serve alcohol in first class. Boarding processes are currently changing as well. Some airlines are boarding in groups limited to 10 at a time and have also been instructing passengers to give one another enough space as they wait to board the flights. So I imagine flying is a pretty different experience these days, eh, Tess? It seems like many businesses out there see it's time to innovate and time to sink or swim. Yeah, Michael. I mean, I sort of think that flying is probably not advisable right now. You shouldn't fly unless you really have to. And Mm -hmm. if you do have to fly, you'll have to make some sacrifices, which might mean 
not ordering that vodka tonic in economy. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's going to be a different world for a little bit. I feel like a lot of people just feel unsafe out there right now. So I think airlines are trying to address that. They know that people aren't flying because they feel unsafe about getting on a plane with a bunch of people. So they're trying to do what they can to say, hey, we're taking steps. We're going to give you some masks. We're going to clean the planes. We have these filters filtering the air. We're going to make our employees wear these masks. Be nice if they could figure out how to give some people, you know, canned drinks with a sanitizing wipe. I always like having a beverage if I'm on a plane, but I imagine most people that are flying, when do you fly? You fly when you're going on a vacation or you fly to go see family. And if you go to uh, on a vacation, you want to go to a restaurant, you want to do something and everything's closed. So, right. Yeah. I think we're seeing a shift in airlines privileging their passengers safety over their passengers comfort. Yeah. People are like, Hey, I'm not going on this flight to be comfortable. I'm going because I have to go to a funeral or have some emergency that I have to fly through the air. Right. And they're like, okay, well, we're going to get you there as safe as possible. So. But you might not get those bells and whistles that you're used to when you normally fly. Yeah. Apparently you can't sit on a middle seat in Delta, but who wants to sit in a middle seat anyway? Uh, actually, Michael, I'm the guy that likes the middle seat. Are I'm, kid- I'm kidding. Um, another thing is now they're encouraging people not to crowd the gate when you get on your plane. So that's something we should have even when the world goes back to normal. Let's not crowd the gate. Yeah, exactly. And when you are deplaning, try and do it in an organized fashion. Thanks for the tips, Tess. You're I think, welcome, uh, Michael. That puts me in a good mood. Today's sponsor on the 21st episode of PCPC is once again BetterHelp. Right now is the perfect time to sign up for some online therapy. With BetterHelp, you'll be matched up with an intelligent, objective, qualified individual to chat with on a regular basis. Make sure you're practicing healthy mental habits. You can message your therapist 24 hours a day. You don't have to leave home. Your therapy sessions take place over video chat. With BetterHelp, you can schedule sessions around your needs. You're not confined to the typical 9 to 5 hours of traditional therapy. To learn more, visit betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, BetterHelp.com, forward slash plane crash pod. I myself struggle with your garden variety depression, maybe even a little smattering of anxiety now and then. And I can't tell you how helpful it is to talk to a therapist every week, especially when you're in quarantine. It should be essential. Yeah, that sounds good. We started this podcast a little over a year ago now to try and tamp down our anxieties surrounding flying. We reasoned that if we learned a little bit more about this topic that we were afraid of, that some of our nervousness about riding in planes might go away. So far, it seems to be helping. We like to point out at the top of each episode that we're aware that what we're discussing is a tragedy in the lives of many human beings out there. The victims of plane crashes are someone's brother, father, sister, or neighbor. We don't intend to be disrespectful or insensitive of that fact. We just think that the discussion of how these crashes took place and how they led to safety changes that improved the quality of air travel is an important discussion to have. Really quickly, Michael, before you get started, thought it was worth mentioning that this story was actually voted on and chosen by our patrons. Yeah, it's an interesting story, so thank you to our patrons out there. Aeroflot Flight 593 was a scheduled flight from Sherat Medieva International Airport in Moscow, Russia, to Kai Tak Airport in Hong Kong on the night of March 23, 1994. The plane was an Airbus A310-304. The A310 is a wide-body aircraft developed by Airbus in the late 1970s and brought to the commercial market in 1983. During the research and design of the A300, a number of airlines communicated their desire to have a smaller aircraft. 
Airbus successfully launched the A300 in 1974, but the company kept in mind the feedback they had received from a number of airlines that not all airlines had used for a massive plane with a passenger capacity of 300. Additionally, Airbus didn't want to be seen as only having one product. So in the late 1970s, Airbus develops the A310. The A310 was a smaller plane than the A300, almost 23 feet shorter. Passenger capacity varied from 190 to 230, depending on the configuration. Like the A300, the A310 has eight abreast seating with two seats by one window, a center section of four seats, and then another two seats by the opposite window. Since the passenger cabin was smaller, the wings were reduced in size in comparison to the A300, and this saved money on fuel costs. The A310 has two engines, one underneath each wing, and a glass cockpit. The plane was used by many airlines for transatlantic routes due to its great range. The A310-200 had a range of 3,500 nautical miles. The plane used for Aeroflot Flight 593 was an A310-300 series, and this plane had a range of 5,150 nautical miles. So in the mid to late 1980s, early 90s, if you're an airline and you need a versatile plane, a plane that can fly a great distance but you don't have to jam-pack it full of 300 passengers every flight, the A310 was the plane for you. Swiss Air took delivery of the first A310 in April 1983. Aeroflot ordered five A310-300 series aircraft in January 1990. The plane used for Flight 593 was manufactured in November 1991 and delivered a year later to Aeroflot in November 1992. The plane had 5,375 flight hours, 846 landings at the time of the incident. There were three pilots on Flight 593. The captain of the flight was Captain Andrei Donilov. Captain Donilov was 40 years old at the time of the incident. He graduated from Sasov Flight School in 1973. He trained on the A310 in France in November 1992, shortly after being hired by Aeroflot. Captain Donilov shared a three-bedroom apartment with his wife and child, and he had been off duty for the previous two days. Captain Donilov had 9,675 flight hours, 950 flying the A310. The first officer of Flight 593 was First Officer Igor Piskarev. He was 33 years old at the time of the incident. First Officer Piskarev graduated from Okubinsk Advanced Civil Aeronautics School in 1982. He trained to fly the A310 in April 1993. He had a wife and one child. First Officer Piskarev had 5,855 flight hours, 440 flying the A310. The third pilot on board, the backup pilot in command, was Captain Yaroslav Kudrinsky. Captain Kudrinsky was 39 years old at the time of the incident. He graduated from Kremenchug Civil Flight School in 1975. He trained on the A310 in Toronto, Canada in November 1992. Captain Kudrinsky had 8,940 flight hours, 907 flight hours on the A310. Captain Kudrinsky was off duty the previous three days before Flight 593. Flight 593 had nine flight attendants, 63 passengers, plus the three pilots in the cockpit for a total of 75 human beings on board. This flight from Moscow to Hong Kong was scheduled to be a 10-hour journey in the skies. The plan after taking off from Moscow was to fly the Trans-Siberian Airway, first over Russia before crossing over Mongolia, then flying south over China headed towards Hong Kong. Seated in the passenger cabin was an off-duty Aeroflot pilot named Vladimir Makarov, a friend of relief pilot Captain Kudrinsky. 
Seated alongside Makarov was Captain Kudrinsky's 13-year-old daughter, Yana, and his 15-year-old son, Eldar. One of the perks that came along with being a pilot for Aeroflot was the occasional free ticket for family members. So Captain Kudrinsky planned a four-day vacation for his son and daughter in Hong Kong. He was a proud father and wanted to take his kids on their first international trip, flying on this two-year-old Airbus A310. Captain Kudrinsky was one of 16 pilots out of 3,000 selected to train and fly the A310. So he wanted to impress his children and say, hey, your dad's a successful pilot. He gets the privilege to fly this brand new plane. You kids come along with me and I'm going to fly us to Hong Kong and we're going to have an amazing holiday. Sounds like a pretty cool experience for a family, right, Tess? Definitely. Captain Donilov supervises the pre-flight preparations. Donilov is going to be in the captain's seat for takeoff and the initial climb. Then because it's a 10-hour flight... Captain Donilov is going to take a break and rest while his relief pilot, Captain Kudrinsky, flies the plane once it's reached its cruising altitude. Later, once the plane approaches Hong Kong, the plan is for Captain Donilov to return, take over the captain's seat once again, and land the plane at Kai Tok Airport. After performing the pre-flight checks, taxiing, and receiving clearance for takeoff, at 4.39 p.m. on March 23, 1994, Aeroflot Flight 593 takes off from Sheremetyevo Airport, Moscow, on a heading of 247. A few minutes after takeoff, flaps are retracted, and the auto throttle's engaged. At 4.51 p.m., 12 minutes after takeoff, Flight 593 levels off at around 30,000 feet, changes heading to 036 degrees, and maintains that 30,000-foot altitude for the next 27 minutes. At 5.18 p.m., 39 minutes after takeoff, the plane climbs a bit to 33,000 feet, and the autopilot navigation sub-mode is engaged. Shortly after, Captain Danilov decides it's time for his break, so he leaves the cockpit to go have a rest in the passenger cabin. Captain Kudrinsky, that was seated in the jump seat in the back of the cockpit, switches seats to the captain's seat, and Captain Kudrinsky becomes the pilot in command, flying the aircraft. For the next three hours, Flight 593 hits a number of pre-programmed waypoints or checkpoints in the sky, makes a few slight heading changes. Flight 593 maintains its altitude of 33,000 feet the entire time. It's a steady and rather uneventful scene in the cockpit, with the plane flying on autopilot and Captain Kudrinsky and First Officer Piskarev overseeing the flight operations and monitoring their flight screens. In the passenger cabin, passengers are settled in for a long flight. It's nighttime and a 10-hour flight, so many of the 63 passengers on board are sleeping. The plane's scheduled to arrive in Hong Kong at 7.30 a.m. local time, so most passengers are trying to get their nightly rest, so when they arrive in Hong Kong, they can be ready to tackle the day. However, there's a few young passengers on board that are on their first international flight in their lives, and they're understandably excited. Captain Kudrinsky's son and daughter, Eldar and Yana, are seated next to their dad's co-worker, Makarov. Makarov can see that the kids are brimming with anticipation, and he suggests that, in a little bit, all three of them should go up and check in on their dad in the cockpit and see what the inside of this cool new Airbus cockpit looks like. It'll give them all something to do, kill some time on this 10-hour flight, plus they can see their dad in action. At 8.26 p.m., just under four hours into the flight, First Officer Piskarev radios over to air traffic control. 
Nova Zabirsk, this is Aeroflot 593, passing you at an altitude of 10100. He's giving their altitude in meters. They're flying at 33,000 feet. First officer continues, expect to turn at 41 minutes. Air traffic control radios back, 59310100, passing you to Novozabirsk control. First officer Piskarev responds, thank you, goodbye. Air traffic control says, good luck. Around 10 minutes passes, and in the passenger cabin, Makarov tells Captain Kudrinsky's children, Eldar and Yana, that now's the time to go up and see if they can say hey to their dad. So all three, Makarov, Eldar, and Yana, walk up the aisle of Flight 593 to the cockpit. Captain Kudrinsky welcomes all three inside the cockpit of the plane that he's currently flying. We should point out that this is March 1994. This is pre-9-11 world, where visits inside the cockpit, though technically might be against airline policy, they weren't exactly unheard of. Obviously, Makarov, a pilot with Aeroflot, was comfortable enough to suggest that they do it, and Captain Kudrinsky welcomes them inside, so you'd have to assume it's not all that unusual. At 8.40 p.m., four hours and one minute into the flight, there's now five human beings in the cockpit. Captain Kudrinsky's in the captain's seat. First Officer Piskarev is in the right-hand co-pilot seat. Makarov is seated in the jump seat in the back of the cockpit. And the two kids, Yana and Eldar, are standing behind their dad, checking out the world of the A310 cockpit and everyone saying hello to each other, greeting each other. At 8.43 p.m., seeing that his daughter is very interested in his workstation and standing in the cockpit behind him, Captain Kudrinsky says to Yana, Come and sit here now, in my seat. Would you like that? Yana says yes, that she would like that. And with the autopilot engaged, Captain Kudrinsky, the pilot in command of Aeroflot Flight 593, gets up from the captain's seat and ushers his 13-year-old daughter into the captain's seat of a plane that's currently cruising at 33,000 feet. 13-year-old Yana puts her hands on the control column of the Airbus A310 and says, Daddy, can I turn this? Have you turned the autopilot on? Captain Kudrinsky says yes. Yana then asks, what is that little star? Captain Kudrinsky says, where? Yana replies, there, see? Captain Kudrinsky says, it's a real one. We've passed Novozubirsk. Novokuznetsk is next. The captain's seat is positioned for a grown man to be sitting at. So Yana says, daddy, raise me up. And Captain Kudrinsky adjusts the seat height so Yana can see and fit more comfortably. Captain Kudrinsky says, there's Novokuznetsk on the left, see? And then Yana says, are we flying low? Captain Kudrinsky points out that the altitude of the flight is 10,100 meters. Yana replies, it's a lot, isn't it? Captain Kudrinsky says, a lot. The pilot that was seated with the kids in the passenger cabin, Makarov, is seated in the jump seat in the cockpit, and he has a video camera. He's taping Yana sitting in the captain's seat, probably thinking this will eventually be a fun home movie for the family to share in the future at time when Yana flew an Aeroflot plane to Hong Kong. At 8.47 p.m., seven minutes into having the family into the cockpit, Captain Kudrinsky asks, Hey, Yana, are you going to fly it? Yana responds, No. Captain Kudrinsky encourages her, Go ahead, take the controls, but don't push the buttons. This one, the red button, which was the autopilot switch, don't touch it. From 8.47 p.m. to 8.50 p.m., Captain Kudrinsky plays a little game with Yana to make her think she's flying the plane. Yana has a light grip on the control column, and her dad alters the autopilot heading by engaging the heading select submode 
and turning the heading select knob to 102 degrees when the plane was initially flying at 111 degrees. This makes the plane turn to the left at a bank angle of 23 degrees and gives Yana the illusion that she's flying the plane and the plane's turning to the left. Captain Grudinski then returns the heading select knob to the right for 115 degrees, and the plane turns to the right at a bank angle of 15 degrees. He then engages the navigation sub-mode of the autopilot, which puts the plane back on its scheduled flight path heading of 102 degrees. At 8.50 p.m., as this right turn back to the 102-degree heading is taking place, First Officer Piskarev radios over to Novokuznetsk, air traffic control and tells them that flight 593 is now passing over and had an estimated arrival at waypoint Zakir at 8.59 p.m. A minute later at 8.51 p.m., 13-year-old Yana gets up from the captain's seat and Captain Kudrinsky decides that now is the time for 15-year-old son Eldar to have a turn. As Eldar is heading to sit down, Makarov, still seated in the jump seat, says, let's get a picture of the pilot. Eldar asks, you're taking a picture? Makarov laughs and says, yes, I am. Eldar sits down at the captain's seat and asks his father, can I turn this, the control? Captain Kudrinsky responds, yes, if you turn it to the left, where will the plane go? Eldar answers, left. Eldar has a firm grip on the column, a stronger hold than his sister applied, and he starts to turn the column to the left. Captain Kudrinsky says, turn it, watch the ground as you go, let's go left, turn left. Again, the captain attempts to repeat the same little game he played with his daughter. Again, Captain Kudrinsky engages the heading select sub-mode on the autopilot, turns the knob left, sending the plane into a left bank of 21.5 degrees. The time is 8.54 p.m. The captain asks his son, is the plane turning? Is the plane turning left? Eldar responds, yes, it is. Either Makarov or the first officer Piskarev says, set the horizon for him. Captain Kudrinsky then turns the heading select knob back to the right. The plane turns right, reaching a 15-degree right bank, and the captain selects a navigation sub-mode on the autopilot, assuming the flight will now continue on its programmed flight path to Hong Kong. At this point, at 8.55 p.m., Captain Kudrinsky's daughter, Yana, that's standing in the back of the cockpit, distracts the captain. The two engage in an exchange for about 24 seconds. Yana apparently wants to return to the passenger cabin, and Captain Kudrinsky says, you'll only go to sleep in the first-class cabin. Don't run there or they'll fire us. While the captain talks with his daughter, Eldar is still sitting in the captain's seat, turning the control column, in his mind, pretending to fly the plane. At 8.55 p.m., as Eldar turns the control wheel to the right, the right bank of the plane suddenly begins to increase. The 15-degree right bank has increased to 20 degrees, and it's increasing further with each second. Eldar gets his father's attention and says, Why is it turning? A perplexed Captain Kudrinsky responds, It's turning by itself? Eldar answers, Yes. The plane's right bank angle is now at 30 degrees. Now, the attention of all three pilots in the cockpit is on the A310's flight navigation display. Where there used to be a straight line laying out the flight path the plane was taking to Hong Kong, there's now an arc, a curve indicating that the plane was going to turn and start heading backwards. Captain Kudrinsky says, have we lost the route? Makarov in the jump seat speaks up and says, it's turning into the area, guys. First Officer Piskarov agrees, we've reached the area, the holding area. Captain Kudrinsky says, have we? And First Officer Piskarov responds, of course. 
So the pilots see this arc on their navigation display. They're trying to figure out what it means exactly, and they quickly guess that for some reason the flight's computer has switched over into a holding pattern. Sometimes if you get to your destination and there's bad weather or a lot of air traffic, planes have to fly a holding pattern up in the sky. Planes have to wait until weather passes or air traffic control can squeeze them into their landing schedule. The pilots look at this info in front of them and quickly decide the plane must have entered a holding pattern for some reason. As the pilots are trying to figure out what this arc means, the plane is still increasing its right bank, which is now passing 50 degrees. Due to the sharp right turn, G-forces start pushing against the bodies of everyone on the plane, pushing them deep into their seats. Everybody feels twice as heavy as they usually do. Makarov exclaims, Hey guys! Captain Kudrinsky screams, Hold it! Hold the control column! Hold it! Flight 593 is now approaching a 90-degree right bank. It's almost flying sideways in the sky. First Officer Piskarov shouts, The speed! Turn to the other side! The other side! Captain Kudrinsky orders, turn left. First Officer Piskarov says, the other way. The captain shouts, turn left, left. At this moment, at 8.56 p.m., all three pilots in the cockpit are shouting directions at a 15-year-old boy that's trapped by G-forces in the captain's seat with his hands on the control column of an Airbus A310 that's flying sideways through the sky at 33,000 feet above Siberia. At 8.56 p.m., the altitude discrepancy warning sounded twice, followed by an autopilot off warning. Now with the plane banking 90 degrees and the autopilot shutting off, the plane enters a steep dive, falling to Earth at a rate of 40,000 feet per minute. Speed of the plane reaches 470 miles per hour. The heavy G-forces everyone was experiencing has now been replaced by weightlessness as the flight plummets towards the ground. First Officer Piskarov says, turn left, ground on the left. Then the First Officer notices the high airspeed, which is exceeding the structural limits of the A310. He pulls the throttles back to idle and pulls his control column toward him with all his might to try and bring this plane out of this dive. The plane is now at 16,000 feet, having fallen 17,000 feet in a little over a minute. Flight 593 starts to climb at a very steep angle, and once again, heavy G-forces force everybody on the plane into their seat. Captain Kudrinsky shouts, Go away, Eldar! Go away! Go away! Go away! I tell you, go away! Unfortunately, poor 15-year-old Eldar is pinned into his seat by the tremendous force of gravity on his body as the plane engages in a near-vertical climb, making it back up to almost 21,000 feet. Because of the steep angle of the climb and the throttles being at idle, once again the plane loses its lift and stalls, the airspeed drops all the way to 120 miles per hour. After Captain Kudrinsky shouts at a helpless Eldar almost a dozen times to get out and go away, as the plane struggles to gain altitude, the plane finally experiences a brief moment of normal gravity right as the plane is about to stall and start falling for the second time. In this short window of a few seconds, Eldar finally is able to get out of the captain's seat, and Captain Kudrinsky quickly sits down. First Officer Piskarov yells, Full power! Full power! Full power! And Captain Kudrinsky responds, I gave power! I gave it! Flight 593 now is in a corkscrew dive towards the ground. Captain Kudrinsky tries to work the rudder to cancel out the spin. Captain asks, What's the speed? First Officer Piskarov says, I have not seen the instrument. Flight 593 is still spiraling towards the Earth, passing through 17,000 feet, 16,000 feet, 15,000, 
Captain Kudrinsky is still battling, working the rudder, and is starting to have some success at stopping the spin. First Officer Piskarev says, the speed is too high. Captain Kudrinsky responds, it is high. And First Officer Piskarev shouts, too high. The plane is passing through 9,000 feet. First Officer Piskarev says, we get out, we get out, we get out, to the right, foot to the right. Speed is high, reduce power. For a few moments, the nose of the plane levels off and the spin has seemed to stop, but again, the nose of the plane drops. First Officer Piskarov shouts, fuck, not again. The time is now 8.57 p.m., and the plane is diving again through 3,000 feet, but Captain Kudrinsky is starting to get the plane to level out as it continues to fall. Captain Kudrinsky says, easy, we'll get out of it now, everything's fine, pull backwards a little, take it easy, take it easy, I tell you. And unfortunately, those are the last words on the recording. At 8.58 p.m. on March 23, 1994, Aeroflot Flight 593 crashes into the side of a hill in the Kuznetsk-Alatau Mountains. The plane crashes on its belly with its landing gear up. No distress calls were ever made to air traffic control. All 75 human beings on board Flight 593 died in the crash. Pieces of wreckage were found over a mile away from the crash site. At the moment of impact, the plane was still descending at 14,000 feet per minute. Victims' families would eventually visit the crash site and leave flowers and notes for their loved ones that perished in the accident. So what exactly happened on Flight 593? It seemed as though Captain Kudrinsky felt there was no danger in having his family in the cockpit. After all, the autopilot was engaged, the computer was flying the plane. If anything goes wrong, he probably assumed he'd get an audio warning or alert. So what exactly occurred that put the plane in a dangerous position to begin with? Well, when Captain Kudrinsky's 13-year-old Yana sits down in the captain's seat, she holds the control column with a gentle grip. She's just going through the motions, not really trying to turn the control column all that much. She's just loosely holding it while her father alters the heading select knob, causing the plane to turn, and they share a laugh together, pretending she's flying the plane. Next, 15-year-old Eldar sits down in the captain's seat, But unlike his sister, Eldar grabs the control column with a firm grip. He asks his dad, can I turn this? To which Captain Kudrinsky says yes. So since he's been given permission, Eldar really tries to turn his control column. He thinks it's safe because his dad, the captain, told him it was okay. Eldar applies a force between 11 to 13 kilograms on the control column as Captain Kudrinsky is distracted and talking to his daughter. When Eldar applies this force the autopilot partially shuts down. There's no audio warning for this partial shutoff. Small warning light turns on in the cockpit, but it goes unnoticed. Suddenly, control of the plane's ailerons, which are part of the plane's roll control system, used to turn the plane to the left or the right, are switched to manual control. 15-year-old Eldar is turning the control column to the right, so the plane, that at the moment was in a 15-degree right bank to get back on its pre-programmed flight path, starts increasing its right bank from 15 to 20 degrees. Eight seconds after the control of the aileron shifts to manual control, Elder turns the control column a little further to the right, causing the right bank of the plane to increase at 2 degrees per second. This is when Eldar says, why is it turning? as he's turning the control column to the right. He's probably thinking, hey, the autopilot's on. Why is this plane turning when I'm turning the control column? I thought the computer was in charge of the plane. In only eight seconds of manual control, 
Eldar notices something strange. The plane seems to be responding to his twists of the control column. Eldar keeps the control column slightly turned to the right, so the right bank of the plane keeps increasing. 21 seconds into this manual control of the ailerons, the plane is turning to the right at 45 degrees. It's operating limit. A little arc pops up on the flight navigation display, and this is when the pilots say, we've reached the area, the holding area. The three pilots in the cockpit think the plane has jumped into a holding pattern, but the fact is that the flight navigation display is showing where the plane is headed given its current inputs, inputs it's receiving manually from Eldar turning the control column to the right. Now, while the ailerons are newly under manual control, the autopilot isn't completely turned off. The computer is still trying to maintain its programmed altitude, so it affects the things that it still has control of. The autopilot pushes the nose of the plane up, and it increases thrust to the engines to try and maintain 33,000 feet as the plane is turning sharply to the right. The autopilot no longer has control of the bank angle, though, so eventually the right bank increases to 90 degrees, and the plane loses lift and falls into the first dive. Maybe it was the stress of the situation or being completely disoriented by the odd maneuvers of the plane, but as the first dive occurs, First Officer Piskarev pulls as hard as he can at the control column. The plane drops to 16,000 feet, and he pulls the plane into an almost vertical climb, which leads to a second stall around 21,000 feet. At this moment, Captain Kudrinsky finally can get back into the captain's seat, but the plane enters a second dive, this time spinning towards the ground. In the report, it's theorized that the plane was in this uncontrollable role initially because the rudder of the plane was sharply deflected, either because Eldar accidentally stepped on the left pedal as he was exiting the captain's seat, or Captain Kudrinsky accidentally stepped on the left pedal when he was regaining his seat. Unfortunately, once Captain Kudrinsky returns to his seat, he only has less than a minute to get the plane that was in a second dive back under control before it crashed. Captain Kudrinsky worked the rudder to stop the spin and almost had the flight under control as it neared the ground, but Flight 593 ran out of time and space and crashed at 8.57 p.m. The conditions of the flight were duplicated in flight simulators after the crash, and investigators found that if the pilots had just simply let go of their control columns, the flight's anti-stall system would have stopped the spin and leveled off from the dive on its own, saving the flight. However, the pilots of Flight 593 were either not aware of this feature or in the stress of the moment, they thought they had to save the flight themselves. In a report on Flight 593, Chief Accident Investigator Ivan Meshkivsky offered up his conclusions as what led to the crash. Number one, the decision by Captain Kudrinsky to allow an unqualified and unauthorized user, his son, to occupy his duty station and intervene in the flying of the airplane. Number two, the execution of demonstration maneuvers that were not anticipated in the flight plan or flight situation, with the captain operating the autopilot while not at his duty station. Number three, application by the outsider and the co-pilot of control forces that interfered with the functioning of the roll channel of the autopilot, thus overriding the autopilot and disconnecting it from aileron control linkage. Number four, the co-pilot and captain failed to detect the fact that the autopilot had become disconnected from the aileron control linkage, probably because the A310 instrumentation has no declutch warning. Number five, a slight unintentional further turn of the control wheel following disengagement of the autopilot caused a right roll to develop. Number six, the captain and co-pilot failed to detect the excessive right bank angle, which exceeded operating limits 
and were late in re-entering the aircraft control loop because their attention was focused on determining why the aircraft had banked to the right. A maneuver they interpreted as entering into a holding area with either no course line or with a new false course line generated on the navigational display. And lastly, number seven, inappropriate and ineffective action on the part of the co-pilot who failed to disconnect the autopilot and to push the control column forward when buffeting occurred and the airplane entered an unusual attitude, high angles of attack and pitch. So before we bring Tess in for a discussion, how did the crash of Flight 593 make flying safer for us today? Well, Flight 593 was another crash that highlighted the fact that pilot training, not only in Russia but worldwide, wasn't up to a high enough standard yet. The pilots of Flight 593 were unaware that the autopilot could partially disconnect, or that if the autopilot were to partially disconnect, they wouldn't receive any audio warning. They were also uninformed in regards to the Airbus's anti-stalling system. They didn't know that all they had to do was let go of the control column and the computer would pull the plane out of the stall itself. Today, all planes are required to have an audio warning if the autopilot even partially disconnects. The training and education of pilots in Russia has greatly improved. Aeroflot has had 97% less crashes between 1995 and 2017 compared to its record over the 50 years prior to the crash of Flight 593. Today, Aeroflot is recognized as a safe airline, every bit as safe as any other worldwide airline. Regulations have become much more stringent in Russia in regards to aviation. Older planes have been phased out of Russian fleets, and Russian pilots are trained very thoroughly on European and American planes before being approved to fly them. Flight 593 was also an opportunity for the world of aviation to learn that pilots needed better training at aircraft upset recovery. Aircraft upset is defined by the FAA as a plane with a pitch attitude greater than 25 degrees nose up, pitch attitude greater than 10 degrees nose down, bank angle greater than 45 degrees, or within these parameters but flying at airspeed inappropriate for the conditions. Seeing that the pilots of Flight 593 couldn't recover the plane after it banked to the right 45 degrees and that right bank kept increasing, it became clear that more training for pilots on how to deal with these unusual and drastic situations and conditions in the sky was necessary to ensure safety and increase the probability that pilots will be able to recover a plane caught in a similar circumstance in the future. So Tess, this wasn't exactly the feel-good story of quarantine, but I think we learned some valuable lessons. As easy as it is to pile on someone for letting their kid control the plane, it seems like Aeroflot failed to ensure these pilots knew how the plane worked. These guys thought the autopilot couldn't be turned off, and if it did click off, they would, were expecting some sort of audio warning. They also seemed to not realize that the plane had an anti-stall system that could have saved the flight during the dives. What did you think about the story? Anything you want to talk about? Well, Michael, let me just say this one's a doozy. Very sad. Um, I think that, you know, from a passenger's perspective, the idea of a captain bringing in his kids to fly the plane Mm -hmm. (laughs) is pretty terrifying. Doesn't really feel like the most responsible move. Um, Just on a human level, um, he was just trying to impress his kids. He was trying to give them a fun, unique experience that they'd never had before. Yeah. And every parent's goal is to protect their kids above anything else. So the idea that that just went as wrong as it did is really mm-hmm. heartbreaking, not yeah. just for his kids, but for the other passengers involved, of course. Definitely. I mean, you could think that Captain Kudrinsky thought there was no danger in what he was doing. 
He was right there overseeing everything. The computer was engaged and flying the plane. He probably just sat in the captain's seat for the last three hours and didn't do much other than observe his flight control monitor. So he probably thinks in his mind, this is so easy, a child could do it. And the computer's doing it. I'm not even doing anything. So in his mind, he was like, oh, my kids can sit in this uh, seat because I'm going to control it with the autopilot heading select knob. Obviously, he didn't see the danger in it. Right. Yeah. I, I'd be curious to know how common that is, if it's ever happened since, if it still does happen. I mean, it does feel like it's an obvious bad move. It should be a no, no, should be a big no, no. But, um, I, if there are any pilots out there that I doubt it is a normal thing that happens, I'm sure it's happened before but I I doubt it happens anymore. And I think a big reason is the point of the podcast that a lot of these crashes are lessons to current day pilots. I would hope that most pilots training, the first thing they do is sit you down and show you all the crashes that happened in the past and how they happened. And I'd Mm -hmm. imagine that this is so notorious that all pilots know of it. And I think like bringing a distraction into the cockpit is greatly frowned upon, much less leaving your station and letting your child sit in the captain's seat. was pretty crazy. And at times it kind of reminded me of a parent playing with their child in the backyard, pushing them around a little Fisher Price toy car, making vroom vroom sounds, you know, when he's changing those things. Let's talk a little bit about the game he thought they were playing. He sat them down and turn the heading select knob and the plane would go to the left and he'd be like, see, you're making it go to the left. They kind of turn the plane kind of into a toy. Yeah. It's kind of like when I was a kid, my parents used to let me sit in their laps while they drove. Mm -hmm. Um, and they were working the pedals, but I had the illusion that I was driving. I mean, I was kind of steering. So, um, anyway, let's not drag my parents (laughs) because they were really great parents, but um, it was a, it's a similar thing where you don't expect your child to um, veer off the road in a situation like that. Yeah, definitely. And I think we should also point out that we're not passing judgment on anyone. It was an incredibly stressful situation once the plane was in trouble. And I'm sure they had a lot of things in their head and decisions to make. And, uh, you know, they tried, the co-pilot and captain tried to save the flight. They tried their best to uh, correct what went wrong, but they yeah. just couldn't do it. Another thing that you mentioned that felt particularly tragic in this accident was that they could have taken their hands off the control column and the plane would have righted itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just... That is just like salt in the wound. If they'd known that, obviously they would have done that. They didn't know it. And that's kind of part of the why this makes flying safer is that now people are aware of that. Obviously, these pilots weren't aware of that feature in the Airbus plane. And now everybody's aware of it. So it's a painful lesson that we had to learn, but at least we learned it. I thought when Makarov says, let's get a picture of the pilot before Eldar sits down, it kind of made me feel like they thought they were in a museum. Seemed like everybody was completely unaware of the fact that they were in a plane at 33,000 feet. Imagine this could happen when you spend thousands of hours in a cockpit that maybe you become kind of desensitized to the danger and importance of what mm-hmm. you're doing. You know, yeah. if you've spent 10,000 hours in a cockpit, you might be susceptible to thinking that this is just an ordinary working experience like a kitchen in a restaurant, you know, and that that the danger and heightened awareness of what you're actually doing might go away. Uh, yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing, actually, that for them, it's just business as usual. And the potential threat of what they were doing just probably wasn't in their minds because mm-hmm. they'd flown a thousand other successful flights with no no incident. 
Yeah. It's probably hard to just keep up your focus. You know, you probably get bored, um, maybe sitting there monitoring flight screens and that's what pilots need to do is always retain focus, realize the importance of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. One thing I also thought to point out again, this is Monday morning quarterbacking, but it seemed like there was some poor CRM on that flight. Even though you can say the lion's share of the blame might go with Captain Kudrinsky and the choices he made, you'd also think that maybe the first officer had a responsibility to step in and say, what the hell are you doing? Like, why are you putting a kid in this seat? You know, yeah. I don't know Russian culture. Maybe, you know, confronting your superior is frowned upon in that society. But it seemed like the first officer had an opportunity to say, what is going on? Or maybe that was such a normal thing that they didn't see it as a big deal. Right. I was surprised that Eldar was in the captain seat for as long as he was i guess he couldn't yeah. get out but he was unmonitored initially and yeah that's when the mistake ha or when the turn of the wheel happened that caused mm -hmm. the uh, ailerons to become manual control and then he had no choice but to be in the seat because once the the plane start banking at a great angle and started climbing he had he was just forced in the seat by g-forces he couldn't get out right and his dad was saying get out get out get out and he's like i he can't can... move i'm four times heavier than i usually am yeah do you know did you read anything about what yana was doing no the... i don't think they know i mean all they really have is the audio right. they don't have a video but there was like a nine second window where i thought uh, there was something really crucial a moment where if captain kudrinsky could have just like hopped into the captain's seat right away and started tackling the problem instead of just staring at the flight navigation display and saying what is this arc and having mm -hmm. a conversation with the other pilots i thought that was a big window that he should have just retaken his station immediately and been like something strange i need to sit down right that was kind of a missed opportunity a number of articles I read online said that the partial shutdown of the autopilot was due to Eldar turning the control column for over 30 seconds. Hmm. I, I didn't include that in the story because I didn't see that in the report. I just saw that the autopilot control to the aileron shuts off if you apply a certain amount of force to the co control column. It was in the Airbus manual. I thought that was a maybe reliable source, but I just wanted to mention that, that a number of articles said it was because they turned it for 30 seconds. So maybe that's the case too. Hmm. So you'd said that Kudrinsky was starting to regain control of the plane near mm -hmm. the end. Um, do you think if he'd had more time, he would have been able to? Yeah, the it seems like you know they he got back in the seat at maybe around twenty thousand feet. So maybe if the plane had made its way back up to thirty thousand feet and he had another ten thousand feet to work with, he would have had more time to figure out the problem, mm -hmm. more time to uh, level off the plane. He was able to stop the spin, and he seemed kind of. Like the plane was leveling off right as it crashed. But when it did crash, I think it was still crashed at a speed of like 14,000 feet per minute, which is fast. So just as a general rule of thumb, it sounds like we don't want children flying commercial airplanes. Would you, would you agree with that? I would Michael? agree with that assessment, Tess. I'm glad you paid attention to the story and we've been able to come to that conclusion. <laughs> no children flying planes from now on, please. That's the moral of this story. Yeah. State Air Safety Investigator Vesevalod Ovcharov stated about Flight 593, The children were just one factor in a chain of events and fateful circumstances. The turning of the wheel wouldn't have shut off the autopilot in a Russian plane. One of the indirect reasons for the tragedy was our years-long isolation from international flying. It was bound to tell in learning to fly foreign aircraft and training crews. Ovcharov goes on to say that Eldar stepped on the right pedal in front of the captain's seat, 
which deflected the rudder and sent the plane into a spin, but the report doesn't make a conclusion on if it was either Eldar or his dad that inadvertently stepped on the pedal. Captain Kudrinsky, Captain Donilov, First Officer Piskarev, and Eldar and Yana Kudrinsky are all buried at Mittenskoya Cemetery in Moscow next to the firefighters that died at the Chernobyl nuclear accident. The father of Adrian DeVille, a passenger that died on Flight 593, said, I can forgive the pilot, I can forgive the children because they were innocent. This man was 39 years old, and he had an exemplary flying career. It was the final five minutes of those 39 years that went awry. Oh, yeah, I I really agree with that. And I think that first and foremost, he really was just a dad trying to show his kids a good time. Yeah, he was he was proud of his job, proud of his status in life. And it's more than anything, just a sad story of a father making a mistake, but he was still proud of his job and thought he had this exclusive position where he could give this his kids a cool experience. He thought he didn't see the danger in it. Right. I'm sure if he thought that it could potentially put people in peril, he would have never done it. It was just, yeah. It was a lesson to be learned, a shocking story. It was sad, but we did take away some changes to air safety that has improved air safety. So it's a sad story, but um, that is the story of Flight 593. Tess, I have a few stories in the world of airline news. Would you like to hear them? Hit me with them, Michael. American Airlines has partnered up with Let's Empower Employment Initiative, In Chicago and Washington, D.C., American Airlines has been providing meals to out-of-work restaurant workers using its surplus of food on hand due to the lack of travel taking place in 2020. So far, 25,000 meals have been donated. Senior Vice President of Global Engagement at American Airlines, Ron DeFeo, said in a statement, Communities across the country have seen a rise in need for meals, and we had a surplus of food due to the decreased demands of air travel. The Let's Empower Employment Initiative is a great example of working within communities and nonprofits in a unique way to help provide what they need in an unprecedented time. American Airlines has donated 200,000 pounds of food since the crisis began to food banks across the United States. It's interesting that the free meals have been earmarked for unemployed restaurant workers. Kind of cool how one struggling industry is looking out for workers in another struggling industry, eh, Tess? Yeah, totally. It's like, I bet... You know, sex shops are helping prostitutes out right now. <laughs> Getting It takes one to know one, you know? Yeah. Scratch my back, I scratch yours. Yep, exactly. I think it's human nature to feel sympathy for those in pain and want to help out. It's probably a lot easier to connect with someone that's experiencing struggles and is in pain if you're in pain. So they're like, hey, we relate to you. Exactly. Dubai-based airline Emirates broke new ground in mid-April, being the first airline to test all passengers for coronavirus prior to boarding for a flight from Dubai to Tunisia. All passengers were given a blood test in the waiting area, and results were available 10 minutes later. Adel Al-Radha, Emirati's COO, said in a statement, We are working on plans to scale up testing capabilities in the future and extend it to other flights. This will enable us to conduct on-site tests and provide immediate confirmation for Emirati's passengers traveling to countries that require COVID-19 test certificates. So, Tess, that seems like maybe a glimpse of what traveling may be like in the future, huh? Absolutely, yeah. And I think that it definitely would put my mind at ease, at least, getting on a plane to know that everyone had been tested. Definitely. I feel like I'm not comfortable flying right now, but if I had to be on a plane, if I knew everyone on that plane just got tested and was told that they were negative, I'd be like, okay, where's my, you know, red wine? Exactly, yeah. Hopefully our future will involve more tests like this. Yeah. 
more um, step hurdles, checkpoints that you have to go through that involve getting tested for coronavirus. Making sure you're healthy so you can make sure that you're making everybody else around you healthy. It seems like if every human being on the planet had a reusable test and just like we brush our teeth in the morning, you take a little coronavirus test, it seems like we could stop this virus in its tracks. Definitely. From the world of wacky airline stories of the past, on September 23rd, 2019 on Xi'an Airlines flight 8215, a plane scheduled to fly out of Wuhan, China. A woman delayed her flight by one hour when during the boarding process, she decided it was time to open up an emergency exit door. When asked why she did this, she replied that the cabin was too stuffy and she wanted a breath of fresh air. The woman was swiftly booted from the flight. The door was sealed and a second round of safety checks was required to make certain the plane was safe. Tess, have you ever been on a plane and just wanted to open a door or window to let in a cool breeze and get some natural air? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I have that impulse all the time. Sometimes I'll just um, crack my window open just a little bit to let a breeze, cross breeze in through the plane. I'm surprised that doesn't cause an explosive decompression. <laughs> I'm always hot on planes. I always wish the air conditioners worked better. That's why I always ask for a drink and an extra glass of ice. It always helps me out. Yeah, you run hot. I do run in hot. In general. Celebrity Harrison Ford was involved in a runway incident at Hawthorne Airport located in the Los Angeles area on April 24th, 2020. The 77-year-old actor was piloting an Aviat Husky and crossed a runway when instructed by the control tower to hold short. In the audio communication that was released online, the air traffic controller tells Ford, Can you hold short on the runway? Traffic on the runway. Ford's plane then taxied onto the runway and the air traffic controller scolded, Get across that runway right now. I told you to hold short. You need to listen up. Harrison Ford responded, excuse me, sir. I thought exactly the opposite. I'm terribly sorry. A rep for Harrison Ford released a statement that said, the purpose of the flight was to maintain currency and proficiency in the aircraft. No one was injured and there was never any danger of a collision. The FAA is currently looking into the incident. This isn't the first air-related incident that Harrison has been involved in. In 1999, Ford made an emergency landing in a California riverbed in a helicopter. In 2015, he crash-landed a World War II-era plane at Penmar Golf Course in Venice, California after an engine failure. In 2017, Ford mistakenly landed on a taxiway at Santa Ana Airport instead of the runway, narrowly missing an American Airlines passenger plane with 110 people on it. So apparently Indiana Jones likes to live life dangerously on screen and off, eh, Tess? Absolutely, and as a huge Harrison Ford fan, I mean, huge fan, I was like my first celebrity crush, Yeah, I'm worried. I don't want this guy flying anymore because Aww. I just, I don't want him in any kind of danger. Yeah, maybe just take up somebody with him, the second set of eyes, second set of ears. Stop flying alone Definitely. if you keep on having issues, but I love Harrison Ford too. I wonder if you fly often recreationally for decades, if incidents are just bound to happen. Or if, you know, sounds like the engine failure wasn't his fault in 2015. It seems like he's had a number of issues. Maybe he's always up in the sky. Maybe some listeners out there can let us know if this is unusual. Definitely, yeah. If you're out there and you are a pilot, let us know if you've had if you've had just a slew of close calls, if that's normal yeah. or, or if it's kind of more like a shooting star. It only happens every so often. Yeah. Either way, I hope Harrison Ford is staying safe out there because I love him. And if you're listening, Harrison Ford, call me. Lastly, the good old Boeing MAX planes have been further pushed back from flying the friendly skies until at least August this year. Southwest Airlines, the biggest owner of MAX 8 planes, has already stated that they won't be flying any Boeing MAX planes until at least November. Apparently, Boeing has been dealing with two new software issues with the MAX 8. 
I read in an article this week explaining that Boeing's Max 8 planes have two 16-bit flight computers that were developed in 1996. These computers were seen as very reliable on the 737 Next Generation planes, so Boeing decided to use them on the new Max series planes instead of developing an entirely new computer. By using the old computers, Boeing knew they'd be using something that had been proven to be reliable, and they wouldn't have the cost of developing a brand new system. The downside is these computers were built 24 years ago, have slow processing power, and the new additional software fixes Boeing has been developing over the past year are overwhelming these older computers. Tess, remember the good old days when all we had to be fearful of was flying on a Max 8 plane? Ah, Those were the good old days, weren't they, Michael? A simpler time. Yeah, I would say from living in the world in 2020, even knowing what I know about Max 8 planes now, I'd give anything to go back in time to 2018 and go on a vacation somewhere on a nice Max 8 plane. I'd rather be on a Max 8 plane in 2018 than any crowded plane in 2020. How about you? I don't know, Michael. I mean, vacation on a Max 8 plane, living in 2020. Neither one sounds appetizing, to be honest. Yeah, I just, I'm looking forward to 2024. 2024 is going to be the year that everything's great. That's going to be the year that we really thrive (laughs) and flourish. Well, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of Plane Crash Podcast. Thanks to Tess Andrade for uh, battling through another episode. Anything you want to say to the people before we go? Michael, honestly, it was a pleasure and I hope you have me back. You'll definitely be back. You'll definitely be back. Thank you to all our listeners out there. Thank you to our Patreon crew. Go to patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod if you want to sign up. Befriend us on Twitter. Go to planecrashpod.com. We have some merch up and you can check out our website. And I hope you all are staying tough out there. I know it's not easy. I know this has been a roller coaster of emotions, having good days, having bad days, but that's just life. They're gonna, when this goes away, you're going to have more good days. You're going to have more bad days. You're going to have more good days. And hopefully the good days outnumber the bad days. I love you guys. I really appreciate the support. It was fun to hang out with you again. And we'll see you guys soon. Take care.